0: The Revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 20. The Revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 20. We begin reading today in verse 7. The Word of God says this, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Duane, will you again pray for the preaching of God's word?
1: Father God, I thank you again for your goodness and your mercies. We thank you for this day. Thank you uh,
0: for the Word of God. Amen. Brother Corey's
1: already prayed a more than adequate uh, prayer for the preaching for today. So I would pray what's in my heart. As i looked at this message today, I've looked at these scriptures and read through them and pondered them and let the Holy Spirit Speak to me, and I was reminded that even though my sins are forgiven, I'll be judged by every idle word. Yes. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says God will bring every deed into judgment. That's right. Along with all the secret things. Whether they be good or evil. Some of the things we think are just so benign and and don't mean anything. They are good or evil. Let your word today, Lord, be quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Let it be a discerner today of yes. our very thoughts and intents <clears throat> of our heart. Yes. You don't need glory from our success. That man can see our success and think, "Boy, God is blessing that church or blessing that person." Lord, you receive glory because of what you brought in our hearts. That's heart. right. That's yeah. right. Even in the secret place in my heart, God, you find glory. So Lord, let your word pierce our hearts today. Amen. even like our secret faults, even those things that are in secret would glorify God, that he would find glory in us, in the lives we live, yes. and what he has drawn in our hearts. Let that be so today, especially in my heart. I thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: So, <clears throat> at the very bottom, as far as our, our text is, is concerned today the fundamental message of it is is this, and I've got it up here on the screen for you. There's coming a day when all created beings, moral beings, uh, we're talking angels and demons and men and women and children, everyone, every moral being that that God ever made is gonna be set before he who is seated upon the, the great white throne, that is before the creator and judge of all the earth, to receive just judgment for who they are and what they've done. And on on that day, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world will be vindicated for the righteousness that were wrought in God and that they're dressed in in Christ and will be saved from God's eternal, holy, just, righteous, true perfect wrath. That's really the bottom line message of this text. So as you can see, it, it's just packed with a gospel implications for us and, and we would be wise to carefully consider those implications today. We're going to start from the beginning here. Verse 7 starts out, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So as long as you are orthodox in the faith and you affirm certain eschatological truths that at least a couple of which are in our creed that we recite every week. The others are most certainly in our 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. But if you affirm a a future physical bodily second coming of Christ and you affirm a future bodily resurrection of the dead and you affirm a future day of Consummation of all things when all evil in the cosmos will be judged finally and permanently death itself uh, being removed from the creation heaven and earth new heavens new earth are come and they're joined together into one so long as you are orthodox and you are affirming those eschatological truths and regardless of your particular eschatological perspective and we have several different ones here in, in our church I think we will None of us are going to disagree with what what I will say now. Uh, Verse 7, here in our text, points to a future time. Verse 7 points to a future time. So let's talk this millennial perspective for just a second here so I can explain what I mean. If you are of the the premillennial perspective, and that's not me, but we have some here and good, solid men that I... I fought John Piper and John MacArthur and our men that I love and I respect greatly. They are premillennialists. If you are a premillennialist, then you, you see us as living now in this present age. Some will call it uh, a church age. But here's where we are in the whole timeline of things. And regardless of what may be right here as far as a tribulation period and a rapture, wherever you're, uh, your thinking happens to be, you're looking for the second coming of Christ. And Corey is already talking about this morning is our, our hope. We are looking for the second advent of Christ, but you're looking for that to begin the binding of Satan and to begin the physical bodily reign of Christ for uh, a thousand years before verse 7 comes, right? So we're not even at the millennium yet for premillennialists, so you will agree with me that verse 7 is definitely in the future. Likewise, for those here in this inaugurated millennial position, I I tend to lean post-millennial but whether you're post or odd, we, we have an inaugurated view of this. And so we've been reading through the Revelation in a particular way. I believe Satan is already bound, at least in respect to the deceit of the nations. And we are now living in the millennial kingdom that is chiefly celestial, but is also transcendent. Christ is ruling and reigning over all things right now. And we are in this millennial kingdom and we are looking for, likewise, the second coming of Christ. But still this release of Satan that comes up here in, in verse 7, it's, it's still for us in this inaugurated millennial view or post-millennial view. It's still in the future for us. So really regardless, we come here and we are talking about future things. Now let me speak specifically here to those of you who have been following with, with me and, and how we have been reading the Revelation through this, reading the Revelation as we have been and a preteristic, uh, post-millennial context, we've been reading it in its historical context, as it was addressed to first century believers living in, uh, Asia Minor in that particular time. We've been considering these things, taking seriously the time words that are here so that we understood the various events of the revelation to be directly applicable for those people because as John says, this was soon for them and very near for them. So that's how we've been taking all of this as we have come through it. And then again, just remembering the words of, of the Lord Jesus Christ who in Matthew chapter 24 promised all of these things these judgments upon the covenant breakers in Israel as they're going to take place in this generation. As a post-millennial who's reading this revelation uh, really uh, preteristically, I don't disagree with my dispensationalist friends on what it's really about. We. Agree, this is about Israel. This is about God's dealing with his covenant nation. I just happen to believe he dealt with that at the time of Christ in that generation that Christ was speaking to, not some future generation that has nothing to do with those who pierced Christ. So that we're reading the same kinds of things. We just, we put it in particular places. So we have as we've read through this. We've recognized that the various events of the revelation were fulfilled Primarily, and we have seen some just some sort of indicators of just future anticipation of future things. We've we've noted the Christological center and all of this, and idealism has also played into our interpretation. But insofar as the events themselves are concerned, we've been seeing that the events of the revelation up to this point have taken place primarily in the first century, in the past, and that's what preterism means. Preterism just means. Past is a Latin word, praeter for, for past. And it's not a bad word. We're all preteristic in some sense. If you believe that Jesus Christ is coming for the first time in the future, you're, you're outside of orthodoxy. We interpret the first coming of Christ, Christ born in Bethlehem, as something that's a prophecy fulfilled in the past. So you're preteristic when it comes to the incarnation of Christ. You're preteristic when it comes to the, the life of Christ and uh, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, even the ascension of Christ. You're all preterists in that respect. So preterism is not a bad word. It just means we believe it's fulfilled in the past. So we come to this issue of eschatology. Eschat- eschatologically, preterism look, preterists look at the, the events of the revelation and we see them primarily as fulfilled In the past. And so that's how we've been reading through this. But of course, even as we've done this, we have recognized that there are certain things in the scripture, certain things prophetically, certain things even here in this revelation that have yet to be fulfilled. Speaking specifically about the second coming of Christ, speaking specifically about a, a bodily resurrection of the dead, speaking specifically about the final judgment of all things. We all know these things have not happened yet. And therefore, as we came into Revelation, we all knew that at some point, the things that we were talking about were going to have to take a decidedly futurist sort of turn. And so consequently, many of you have asked me along the way as we've taken this trek through the Revelation. Okay, what point are we going to start talking about future events, future things? And we finally come to that particular point. And, And this is important. I want you to understand this. It isn't tradition that is pressing us into the future. And it isn't some pre-concocted theological system that we are superimposing upon the text that is compelling us to make this jump from the first century and the primary fulfillment of these uh, events of the revelation in the first century. It is the text itself that is driving our view into the future. And here's what I mean. This first century audience, and we've been trying to read this through their lenses. They have had every reason up to this point in the revelation to believe that what they were reading, what they were hearing read in their ears was soon and near for them. But when you come along in chapter 20 and you begin to mention a thousand years, you begin to press things out into the future. And I know we talked last week about how I believe this thousand years. It's not exactly a 1,000 years, maybe, I mean, it's not 999, it's not 1,001, like, it's symbolic. But nevertheless, even as that first century people viewed this 1,000 years as a symbolic use of number, they're still recognizing, okay, this is not for me. And this is not for my children. And this is not for my grandchildren or my great-great-grandchildren. This this fulfillment, verse seven, is gonna be way off out into the distant future as I'm a believer in the first century. Reading this, they would know. Now we're talking about far out into the future things. And so that's what I mean when I say the text is driving us to now see future things. And so we begin today decidedly to make that shift to future events. Now because... This is almost without question covering things that are in the future. I am not going to spend any time today speculating about what this might look like when it actually comes. Books have been written, papers, articles. I mean, studies as men speculate about what they think this all is going to look like. And and honestly, that kind of speculation is, is really of no benefit to the church militant as we live our lives. It's just hey, this might be neat if it goes down this way. We don't want to speculate. We want to deal with what is here in the text. So what we do know from this text is that when this time comes, and it's future, maybe it's near future, maybe Satan is going to be released tomorrow, maybe he was released this morning and he's just gotten started, but it's future. It's been future since, as we've been preaching through this, but as we look into the future, when this time comes, it will be a kind of last stand for evil. And it's going to involve a concerted effort by all of the remaining God-haters in the cosmos, in the world. So as we read the text, Satan is going to be released to do all that is in his own wicked heart. And so I, I want to clarify this because of what we said last week. I told you that Christ dealt with Satan, the enemy, in a very particular way. He's already thrown the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Their, their final judgment has already come. He's not done with Satan, though. And so he's locked him in the pit of the abyss. He's chained. He's bound. He's, he's limited in some respect. But God still has a purpose for Satan. And so he's, he's not arrived at his final destiny yet. Now, as we say that, God is sovereign over all evil, including his his use of evil in that context in which we find it in Genesis chapter 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I want to be clear. God is not releasing Satan and then forcing him to take particular actions. Satan is here released in the, the language of this. will bear that out. He's released and he will go and do all that is in his own heart. If God had not bound Satan and limited Satan with respect to the nations, then Satan would at all times love to carry out the will of his heart and unite all of the nations of the world in the utter destruction of God's people who are still living on the planet. But God does not permit that. But when Satan is released, the text says he comes out to deceive. Comes out is just a deponent verb. It's got, it's got no active or passive role in it. He just it comes out because God has released him to do a particular thing. And then he goes out, active indicative, the verb The verbs in the Greek are very clear. He's going out to do what he wants to do, to deceive the nations. And so he's gonna be permitted at that time to stir up all the wickedness and all of the rebellion and all of the sin that resides in all of the hearts of all unrepentant, unbelieving sinners in the world. In the language of this text of the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, that's just the Hebraism, it's the way that the Jews would speak to talk about all of the nations, nobody is excluded from this. Satan is going to go out; he's going to tempt literally everybody who is not in Christ Jesus. You'll also get hear this mention of Gog and Magog, and I will say something here that will be controversial for many of our pre-tribulationists brothers and sisters. But Gog and Magog is, it comes out of Ezekiel chapter thirty-eight and thirty-nine. That is not a future prophecy that we're still waiting for. Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine. If you will do the legwork in the scriptures, was fulfilled in the days of Mordecai and Esther. Ezekiel is prophesying a hundred years before those events, telling about a great enemy that's going to rise up and try to exterminate the Jews all over the world. And in the days of Esther, Corey has preached through the book of Esther for us. That's when Haman Agag, Haman the Agagite, rose up and stirred up the powers to come against and destroy the Jews all over the empire. And he succeeded in getting the king to actually sign the decree to exterminate God's elect people. But of course, God shows up to deliver his people. Well, John goes back to the Old Testament and he grabs that and he brings it forward to show that the same thing is going to happen again. That Satan is going to stir up an enemy to, to gather together all whose hearts are perhaps subjected to, to God only pretentiously. Falsely, They're not true believers. Satan will stir up the hearts of all the wicked, all the unbelieving in the world. And he's not forcing them. He's simply deceiving them into believing as as the serpent did to Eve in the garden. You're not going to die. You can survive this. You can be like God if you will only overcome his people. You can take the kingdom for yourselves and they will believe that lie. They will believe that they can overcome God and his people. And they will rise up and fight back they will come against all of camp and the holy city that is just universalization of the language towards the saints and then god himself will rise up as he did in the days of old and will consume them consuming all of his adversaries that's what revelation is is painting the picture of for us this then leads in our text in no certain order of events. I, I've got my opinions on this, but I'm just going to list them here as they show up in Revelation 20. The final condemnation and final judgment of Satan. The general resurrection of the dead because the, the dead, small and great, are standing before the throne. The final judgment of all moral creatures who've ever lived, each according to what he's done. The final and eternal destruction of death and Hades in the lake of fire. The eternal condemnation and judgment of all who are not written in the Lamb's book of life, and then by implication, the redemption and salvation of all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All in all, these few verses give us a glimpse into the final judgment day, prophesied of and spoken of in so many different ways all throughout the scriptures. And in these, in so doing, these, these lines here are commending us to that Great eschatological hope that one day all evil is going to be fully Amen. and finally answered. Justice will be fully and finally given. And and the dominions of our great adversary Satan and the last enemy death that has ruled over the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve since the beginning, it'll finally come to an end. Their dominion will be no more. They will be pushed outside of God's good creation as heaven and earth become one and this is all a result of what we have been seeing all along Christ is on the throne and the judge of all the earth will do justly and our God will redeem without fail all of his saints all of those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world again just bottom line here this is just filled with gospel implications and we will be wise to Consider them. And that's how I want to spend the rest of the time here, just unpacking these gospel implications as we see them coming out of this text. So look with me very quickly. We're going to run through these last few verses and just think about the gospel implications of this judgment day. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So that language of him who was seated on the it on the throne just recalls back to the throne room vision of chapter four and chapter five we see that language in both of those chapters this is the same throne that's been over all things from the beginning of this revelation the fact that it is called the great throne means that there is no higher authority there is no appellate court for if you don't like what god hands down his is the final judgment throne his 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 verdict is absolute The fact that it is white connotes purity, integrity. As the scripture says all throughout the Old Testament, his throne is the throne of justice and righteousness. God is not a respecter of persons. He's not going to accept bribes on the day of judgment. He's not going to allow you to plead mitigating circumstances. Well, you don't understand. I was born into a broken home and you don't understand I was poor or you don't understand power was corrupting. He's not going to accept the mitigating pleas of those who stand before him. He is the righteous judge. He judges according to what is true. This great white throne illustrates that for us. And this language of earth and sky, earth and heaven fleeing away, if this, is, if this sounds impending and intimidating, it's supposed to be. The idea that when God comes to judge all of the earth, the things that he was calling to throughout, throughout the Old Testament, let the heavens and the earth bear witness against my people. They flee. They're running from the presence of this almighty God and, and heaven and earth have no place to hide When his glory begins to shine, this is meant to strike terror in the hearts of those who read it. This is the almighty creator, God, and judge, and king, and he will judge all things. Twelve, the first part says, I saw the dead. Now, who are these dead? I know people have a lot of different views on this. Uh, I think I've heard growing up the idea that Christians will be judged before the the judgment scene of Christ, the Bema, as we find it in the epistles. And the, the sinners, they get judged before the great white throne judgment bar of God. And we, we make these kinds of distinctions. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's a legitimate distinction, but that's, this text is not trying to do that. It's not trying to mitigate and draw down who we envision as as being here. In fact, as you come to verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged. each one of them according to what they had done. The text is trying to make sure you understand that regardless of how you've read these things about uh, uh, resurrections and things, everybody stands before the judge. Nobody escapes judgment. The text is gonna vindicate the righteous in its own way as it talks about those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but nobody escapes judgment. And Wayne in his prayer has already quoted some of those passages. Scripture says in so many different ways that we are going to all stand and give an account. The writer of Ecclesiastes starts out in, in chapter 12 commending, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. When the evil days come not and the years draw nigh, when he will say, I have no pleasure in, in those days. And then he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandment for this is the whole duty of man. This is the purpose for mankind. For God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And he's speaking that to a believing community. Believers will most certainly come into the presence of God for judgment. Christ himself tells us that every idle word that a man speaks, and he's talking to disciples there, every idle word that a man speaks, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Every idle word. Paul talks about, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he talks about believers as passing through a judgment by fire to test our works. Whether they will survive the fire or not will depend upon whether or not they were done in faith toward God and by the power of Holy Spirit and the love of God. And if, if not, if they were for us and filled with vain glory and gratification in the world, they will be burned up. The believer is saved, yet so as by fire to use his words. Peter even says that judgment must begin at the house of God, so we don't come here and see this grand vision of judgment and say, "Get him, God!" We ourselves are at this judgment throne. Right. The dead, and he says he goes on small and great. So we we we're, we're, we're such humanistic people. We can't fathom how a little infant, a little child, might be guilty and unholy before a holy, holy, holy God, and yet it is so. We're sinners dead in Adam. Worthy of death because of what we are. And then as soon as we leave the womb, we go astray, Scripture says. Crying out for our own defense and our own self-gratification. Babies learn to lie very very quickly, even before they learn to speak. We're just, we're sinful people. And so the text comes here and it says, small and great, old and young, rich and poor, the powerful, and the marginalized. We all stand before the the judgment seat of God. And again, no mitigating circumstances will be entertained. No bribes will be accepted by this holy, holy, holy God. The dead, small and great, men and women, children, all will give an account to the God who created us and made us, and this text doesn't leave anything out. It goes on and says, the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And really, again, it doesn't really matter if you think this is just the wicked dead, because the scripture says in so many places that you also are going to give an account for everything that you do in your life. As I've said so many times to this this church through the years, what we do does matter. God wants to build up a holy people who love him and long for him, who love his word, who will spend time in prayer, wrestling with God, enduring through troubles and trials and tribulation, persevering against uh, temptations to sin, overcoming in righteousness. And we will give an account for every idolatrous moment that we spent Moments that could have been enjoyed with God on vacation with our family that were instead spent on the lust of our flesh. Every, every dollar that could have been invested in some godly way. The work hours that we spent that could have been done as unto the Lord, but that were wasted on our own passions and, and just sort of half-heartedly giving our work to our employers Every work of every person is going to be judged. The books will be open. The records will be read. God's judgment will be complete. I take this also to mean the books of the law will be open for that is the holy standard that is written upon the hearts of everyone. Whether we're talking about the the law of God as it is written upon the heart of the believer so that we internalize it and we're actually transformed, or whether we're talking about the works of the law, as Romans says, that are written upon the consciences of all men. All men come into this world knowing some sense of good and evil, right and wrong, that there is a God and everybody will have, will give an account. Right, the Scripture tells us that, that the God is so self-evident in the world in which we live that none has an excuse before the throne on this day. Scripture doesn't actually believe in atheists. It believes in believers and liars, those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who deny what their consciences actually know, deep down to be true. Men may tell you that they don't believe in God, but deep down they know there is a God in heaven and they will give an account one day on the day of judgment. Nobody escapes this day. All of our deeds and all of our works will be judged. doesn't sound like a Christmas Christmas message, but it is a necessary message. This is the foundation for the gospel that will be proclaimed. We must believe that God is. And that he is the judge of all the earth and that we will give an account to him before ever the gospel can be good news. God is the judge. Judgment day is coming. But this is ultimately a victory for God's people. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This represents a victory over all evil. Satan has already been judged. All the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, they are judged. This is humans and demons, all are judged. Finally, death itself, the grave itself, is thrown into the lake of fire. All that is evil and is, is in rebellion against God, that hates God, is moved outside of God's good creation that He began in the garden in Genesis. Revelation is bringing reconciliation to the whole picture. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this really is the point of everything that's, that's, that's been coming out here and why this is something that is filled with gospel implications. We're all gonna give an account for everything that we've done. Every lustful thought, every wasted minute, every idle word, every sin, we are gonna give an account for it. Believers and unbelievers are going to stand before Christ and give an account. But the destinies of two groups are here written in this line. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life do not get justice. They get mercy. We're going to come to that in the chapters to come. The wicked, they don't get injustice. They get justice. They get what they deserve. Those whose names, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, their evil, their sin, their wickedness. It is answered, but it's answered in the Lamb who was slain. Amen. The Lamb who is their judge, who paid the price for their sins. This is the glorious gospel. And by the time we come to the end of the revelation, The spirit and the bride are all going to be saying, come, come into the kingdom. Hear the gospel message and be transformed for Christ is making all things new. And you can be made new now. It's a glorious gospel proclamation, but it must be cast against the backdrop of God's holy, holy, holy justice. Without this context, the cross is just a vain, empty show of an exemplary love. And what an empty form of atonement theology that is. Christ came into the world not to deal with sin, but to show you how to be nice to your, your neighbor. This is not the Christ that we ought to preach. This is not the cross that makes an atonement for sin. Christ came in to the world to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve to die so that He would absorb the full wrath of God that is now causing heaven and earth to flee away. His people stand safe in Him. And that great white throne that is not different for the saints versus the sinners is to us a mercy saint, a throne of grace, where all wrath is passed away, all sin is answered in their judge, he still bears in his body the marks of their redemption. My name is graven on his hands. It's written on his heart. The Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, it's etched with the names of all those who put their faith and trust in him and they alone are delivered from this day of wrath. The Believers, Please do not take this message of grace. My name is written, and therefore I will go and live however I want. No true believer who who has been born again, who has the spirit of God living within him, who has not just the works of the law written on their hearts, but has the law itself etched into their very being so that now we don't have negative commands, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's how could we commit adultery? It's not thou shalt not steal. It's oh God is is more than than I could ever long for. He fills all of our longings. We've been transformed. So hear this from me now. Because this is something that I think a lot of people give have given in recent years Piper a hard time about and give John John MacArthur a hard time about. This reality that there is A final aspect of of justification or vindication, sanctification that is answered on this day of judgment. Where those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life bring forth fruits of repentance. If it was a last minute conversion, it's the fruit of confession in Jesus Christ. There are works of righteousness that vindicate the faith that Holy Spirit has worked within us. If it's only baptism before you die, and a forsaking of sin. It's fruits that are meat for repentance. None of those who are vindicated on this day will be people who came and walked an aisle in a church service at one point or raised their hand and prayed a prayer and maybe went through the the act of baptism, but then turned and walked away and, and went right back to sin. None of those vindicated on that day will be those kinds of pretentious believers. So we came through the... All of a discourse. Jesus gives us a picture of, of judgment where he's separating the, the sheep from the goats. And he looks to the, the sheep and he says, Come into the kingdom because you did all of these. You, you, you gave me water and you fed me and you clothed me. And they're saying, What? When did we do that? They don't even recognize that they were serving Christ because they were doing that which was their nature to do. He's transformed them. Their lives are different. Good things are coming out of them. He looks at the goats and he depart from me because you didn't feed me. You didn't give me water. You didn't clothe me. And, and these righteous religious people have given alms and they've showed up at church every Sunday and they've, they've, they've recited creeds and they've written songs and sang his praises and cast out demons in his name. And he says, but when did we not serve you, Lord? They don't even recognize the wretchedness of their own righteousnesses that were done for themselves, for their own glory and vanity. Listen, Christ is all in all. Amen. We affirm wholeheartedly the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. For by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We affirm that wholeheartedly. That is good gospel news. If my salvation, my justification were in any way dependent upon the works that I bring before God, then I would surely be lost. It is Christ alone. But the next verse is in Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God has saved out a people, called out a people that they might go and show forth the glories of his great name. In other words, there is no person whose name has been written down in heaven who does not show a transformed life. We affirm salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, but not a faith that is alone. When you stand before Christ and give an account of the things done in the body, even as a believer, what you do matters. It matters not as the foundation of your justification, but, of, but as the evidence that Christ is a powerful Savior who doesn't just rule over death and hell, but rules over sin in your heart. That's why he comes, and I said it last week, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies for sin shall not have dominion over you. Before Christ, sin had absolute dominion over you, there was nothing that you could do that could in any way please God. But as a believer, now you can please God. By the sanctifying grace of God, the Holy Spirit in you, you can come and you can read the word for the glory of God. And you can lay up scripture in your heart for the glory of God. And you can pray trusting in God for the glory of God. And you can share the gospel with your family members and your friends and your neighbors. You can raise up a godly generation of children for the glory of our God. Fruits of righteousness. This text is bringing some heavy judgment down upon God's people. But even as it speaks of those who will be thrown forever into the lake of fire because they did not know Christ, because their names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, it does by implication call us to live out the salvation that has been brought to us. We are going to all stand before this judge. The gospel is good news. But the gospel is first and foremost a message about God, not how men come to be saved. The gospel begins with God as the creator, the maker of all that is, and all things will give an account to him. He is good and righteous and holy and true. His judgment is perfect. Sin has marred this and God has answered the sin. He's come in the flesh. That's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Jesus Christ, God, the eternal God, put on flesh and dwelt among us. He fulfilled righteousness perfectly inasmuch as he himself is perfectly righteous. And he died on behalf of all those who would put their faith and trust in him. Their names have been written. If you've trusted in Christ, praise God for it. But live for your king. There is no believer that is not now feeling the weight of what we are preaching. If you sit here and you say, this is just too fantastic to believe, it sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie where, where God's throne is just out in the blackness of space and then heaven and earth are just running away from it and multitudes of souls standing before it. That's just, it's just too fantastical. If you don't believe it, your name is not written. If you believe it though, you feel the, you feel the weight of this. Yes. If you've never confessed Christ, then today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come and repent of your sin. If you have confessed and you do believe, then today is a day to follow after Christ, recognizing that we are going to stand before God and give an account. And by the time we come to the end of Revelation, we will see new heavens and new earth coming down. So many times I hear messages about life after this life from good solid preachers that just give the image of us living on in heaven. And God designed the world to be subdued and worked in joy and fellowship with him. And that's new heavens, new earth. It's a place of fellowship. It is a place of work. It is a place of authority. I think even in the past, some of us have said things like civil government is just something that we have to deal with in a fallen world. That's not true. Civil government is a, is a good gift of God and there will be civil order in new heavens and new earth. If Adam and Eve had not fallen and they'd had children in righteousness, they still would be ruling and reigning over children and children would be ruling and reigning over others. There would be an order. This is what God commanded from the beginning. And so scripture in all of the various ways in which Christ talks about judgment, it commends us to be engaged in kingdom work. There are rewards to be given. There is authority to be had. The scripture not in vain says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's not talking about gold and silver and jewels and things that have no worth in eternity. It's talking about those things that will honor and glorify God and will commend us to more and more of his presence and more and more in knowledge and enjoyment of him and more and more authority and ability in new heavens and new earth. Truly Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Resurrection is coming. Paul reasons if the resurrection is not true, if there's no bodily resurrection, then who cares about living righteously? If there's no eternal life, if there's no judgment seat, live how you want, eat and drink, tomorrow we die, who cares? But there is a judgment day coming. What you do does matter. How you raise your kids, it does matter. The kind of husband that you are, it matters. The kind of wife that you are or will be, that matters. The kinds of children that you raise, it matters. The kind of citizen and neighbor and worker that you are, it matters. It matters for this reason. That believers might be glorifying to God, let it matter to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the grace of the gospel. For righteousness in Jesus Christ. For our names written in heaven. For salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone in Christ alone. And for the call to come and live in the freedom from sin. Which has been given to us in Christ. Oh that you would create us to be a holy and righteous people. A lot of people who've gathered today in vain to hear, to go through the motions of hearing a sermon and then do nothing with it. God, quicken our hearts and our souls today that we may hear this word, praise you for eternal salvation, Amen. and then turn to walk in the grace that has been poured out in our lives and to cry out for more grace, Amen. more mercy, yeah. that we may be more faithful, more God-glorifying. Oh God, let us not waste our lives. But let us, cause us, O oh Lord, our, our God, by your grace, cause us to stand before your throne and give an account with joy. And hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your Lord. This is a Sunday, an Advent Sunday of joy. And our joy is complete when we rest in Christ alone and we come and serve our God. Bring that out of your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.